Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello, world, and welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with me, Eyal Shai. Today, my guest is David Beck. Hi, David. Hi, Eyal. Nice to meet you. Or is it Dave usually? It's normally Dave at the moment, but I answer to both. <laughs> All right. So welcome, Dave Beck. And without further ado, what will be the topic for discussion today? Sure. So the main things I think about are intuition and attention. So it, it's how our attention shapes who we become in the future and how our intuition allows us to kind of converse with our subconscious to find out who we are, who we act as automatically. And then um, we can kind of tweak and converse with, with ourselves and our subconscious and think through that really. Um, so anything in that field, I'm happy to chat about. Fascinating, fascinating subject, and it's so clearly connected to an attempt to live well, which is the overarching theme of this podcast. And I'd like you to maybe take us through um, the process that you've gone through to get at these uh, more specific concepts or ideas. Um, how did it start brewing in your mind? What led to this uh, focus on um, intuition and attention? Sure. So it really started brewing just after we crossed the Atlantic in the boat that my family and I live in. Um, I'd spent three weeks sailing uh, with a lot of time to just sit and think and percolate. I wasn't reading a whole lot. I was mostly just sitting, staring out at the ocean. And I realized that my own life had a very strange well-being curve um, that I guess a lot of people can relate to up to a certain point and then becomes a little bit weird. And intuition's the answer for how it became a little bit weird. It's the answer that I came up with. So the, the way I describe that well-being curve is it, it's felt like a straight line that discipline and habits and all the normal things, working a normal career that I thought would be my career for life, having children in a house that I thought would be our house for life, all of those normal kind of aspirations for people had me climbing what felt like a line of well-being. And then when we took two years off to go sailing, um, and let go of all those habits and let go of all that discipline and started just acting based on how we felt like acting that day, well-being kind of turned exponential. Um, and I, I can't really describe that in a way that relates to most people, but it, everything felt easier for us. All our decisions felt very simple. Even when complex things were going on around us or potentially stressful situations were emerging, it was easy. We just acted how we felt like acting and it was the right way to act. And we felt confident in that and comfortable in that virtually all the time. Intervention by our conscious mind became something to do on a rare occasion when you notice something's out of alignment, something felt wrong, rather than a constant sense of, I need to do this. This is my priority today. This is my priority tomorrow. There was, there was none of that anymore. And while I was sailing, I was thinking about a lot of literature that I'd read about how 
the mind works, about how people in the past have talked about well-being and have talked about the aims of life, and particularly the, through the scientific revolution, the idea of controlling nature and controlling man and increasingly taking control of ourselves. And it felt like letting go of that control was actually what had opened up my own life. And it's intuition that allows you to let go of that control. So intuition is the automatic suggestions that your body comes up with, the, the, the kind of automatic responses to situations, the insights that just emerge when you're not really doing anything. And I think it was letting go of the habits, the discipline, letting go of um, not the stress of everyday life. I was never particularly stressed, but the busyness, the doing of everyday life. Letting go of all of that allowed my intuition to come out in a way that it hadn't before. And I started reading from there um, and coming out with different ways of tweaking my intuition and making it easier to fit the different aspects of me into, into one, um, in, into somebody who, who can always just act how, how I want to and not really have to think too hard, um, which makes life rather blissful. Yeah, so so much to unpack there, and I'm excited to do <laughs> all of it. I want I want to stick with the with the biographical details a little bit, or or the uh, could you give us an insight regarding your uh, psychological makeup coming up to this decision of actually living the the normal world with the job and everything behind, like as a family or 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 just you and your own. What was kind of bringing you to to make uh, such a decision? Because you'd be heard now by many people with normal jobs and 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 thinking, wow, you know, these people really did it. <laughs> we all think about it. How many of us actually yeah, do it? Um, yeah. So what what was that like? What was the process? Sure. So um, <clears throat> my my wife and I had two kids at this point, and I was just getting into a job setting up a new course at the University of Warwick on sustainable development. Fantastic course. We'd had our first cohort in. And we realized that if we wanted to go and do something else for a, a limited period of time, this was just for two years originally, um, this was really the best chance because it was before our kids would start school or before they would start at least homeschooling with other children and, and kind of engaging in, a, in friendships and, and in growing up in a more normal way. So we figured with the flexibility that my academic job had of a two-year sabbatical, a job to return to at the end of that two years, that's an incredible privilege. It really is being able to take two years out. We would use that to go and do something we, we joked about several times and go sailing. Um, that was one of our first huge decisions that was made on a laugh. We, we basically talked about going sailing, laughed about it. And then a few months later, we were selling the house and buying a boat. And I don't really know how the intervening period happened. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of rationality there. There was a lot of rationalization afterwards. Um, so yeah, it, it was a, a perfect moment for us in that um, the kids were at the right age to be able to go sailing and engage in that world without us worrying about things they might be missing from normal life, which makes me laugh now because their life is so much better than normal life. Um, and it was also a good time professionally because we just started to expand the department. So there were other people there to take on some of the responsibilities that I had, and it was easy to hand over to somebody 
at that moment in a way that it wouldn't have been either before or after. It was kind of a, a, a very nice nexus between those two personal and professional things that gave us the flexibility, wanting to go sailing, something that myself and my wife have wanted to do forever, um, kind of intermittently. And like I say, as a joke and living as a joke turns out to be quite a good idea, at least for us. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You know, so my own personal story is basically just losing my job at the onset of the, of the pandemic because there were no tourists to come visit. And I'm a tour guide and it's kind of, I see the, the, the correlate there with the correlation with your story when there is just this opportunity that opens up, right. With, with a two year sabbatical and, um, this at this point is quite coincidental, right? Because you haven't made a conscious decision to take these two years off. It's just in your life trajectory, some chance that opened up and you decided to pounce on it. And that's really interesting to note that even the people that do do things that are quite different uh, might initially kind of had to to be fed this opportunity rather than rather than having actually proactively uh, seek it out so that's interesting and yeah so now now you've you've done this kind of uh, almost crazy step of just leaving everything behind and going on a boat what would be uh, a, a moment to to pause and ponder on in terms of Hey, I have an insight here. Like I feel differently about um, uh, something or about how decisions should be made. Was it just that uh, you've had such great feedback on this initial decision that everything else became easy, or um, or something different? Like what would be the next? I didn't instance? realize it was an insight or something worth sharing for quite a time after that. I thought this was how I'll live my life because it works for me and my wife and my family. And um, I didn't really stop to extrapolate it beyond that because I was simply living for quite a while. And then when we started to look at whether to return to that normal life or not, um, after as the two years kind of came up and we were sailing up and down the window dials of the Caribbean and enjoying ourselves, and I was testing out working, um, that was when I realized I had something interesting to say because I was taking on research projects. I still thought of myself entirely as an academic. Um, I was taking on research projects for people and that was turning into more work simply because those people wanted insights from me. They wanted to chat with me and to extend those conversations. And as that developed into what I now call cognitive coaching, which is me kind of poking at how they think and tweaking their thought patterns and starting to train their intuitions, it kind of came together that using our conscious mind to tweak how our subconscious acts automatically is a more transformative process for people who are already in a really good position um, than simply piling routine and habit on routine and habit. Um, most people's self-improvement really is a collection of routines and habits that are each individually wonderful and each individually very good things that, that do good things for your body or for your mind or for both, um, but don't offer the possibility of stepping out into a new self-sustaining reality where you can just be and you can just sit back 
And what I've been doing with my clients is letting them just sit back. Um, and when they started trebling my pay without me asking, sending me bonuses without me asking, I realized that maybe I had something interesting to share here. Um, and because of that increased pay, I can work four, five, six hours a week. That provides for my family reasonably well with a little bit of security. And then I can spend the rest of my time thinking and creating. Um, I still only work 20 hours a week because that's the balance that works nicely for me. But because of the the pay from cognitive coaching, I, I'm able to try and share some of this more broadly. Um, the caveats I have in my own mind are, I know this won't work for people who are perpetually anxious. I know this doesn't work for people in um, who are kind of earlier down the, the well-being line that I talked about earlier. They need to be somewhere higher up along it. And I'm trying to explore by talking to more people where the point is at which you can you can make things go exponential by letting go a little bit. Um, which is why Twitter's been so interesting because there are people talking about letting go and non-coercion and things like that. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I've been noticing and it it kind of resonates with with my thoughts lately about how much people are interested in in optimization. And it sounds almost like what you're saying is we need to let go of that, which is something that I've been thinking about because as you say, being so um, being so preoccupied with the correct habits and how we should act and you know putting everything in nice sheets on notion and all that uh, can actually lead to neuroticism, right? Because you're chasing yeah. and you're trying to always get your um, finger in that hole in the dam that's leaking right now and you end up going through from hole to hole and everything just keeps on flowing and overwhelming you and i've been having that metaphor a lot in my mind where it's basically an invitation to become neurotic like actually seeking out all these different techniques and methods and and doing all that so in that sense our conversation now is is a boon to me because it allows me to rent to rant a little bit about that. Um, yeah, in terms of in terms of actually approaching this thing, also I want to explore a little bit what you say about what is the right point for people to uh, to to jump onto that wagon or join or try to do that. When you say anxious people, when you see a lot of people seeking out these best practices right is that yeah. is that what you mean by people who might not necessarily be open to the idea or yeah not what necessarily i i think a lot of people who are seeking out best practices and who have been doing some of those best practices let me add that caveat not just reading about them but actually doing some of those things um you can bridge those into a more intuitive life by encouraging them to, to listen to their body mind a little bit. And by virtue of listening, um, somehow our brain reconnects with our body and magic happens. But when I say anxious people, what I mean is people who are caught up in um, cycles of things like self-criticism if you're constantly criticizing yourself, it's incredibly difficult to listen to your body mind for, for two reasons. One is cognitive. Um, cognitively, it's really difficult to believe that you have something to share with yourself. 
if you're caught up in a cycle of self-criticism. And the other one is is biological. Um, if you're an anxious person who is kind of high in stress, then the parasympathetic nervous system doesn't activate very often. It's not very strong in the way that it should be. It doesn't dominate over the sympathetic often. And it's the parasympathetic nervous system that allows the body's self-regulatory processes to work. It's it's that part that carries all of the information from your body into your mind. I don't like separating the two, but it carries the information that you have to listen to. And it's really listening to your body and how you breathe, how your guts feel, how your body language is naturally, where your tension's held, things like that. It's listening to those things that allows you to to tap into the intuitive insights that, that you hold in yourself. And if you can't hear those signals because you're so busy criticizing yourself or because they're, they're masked for whatever reason, whether it's stress or whether it's simple disuse, then it's very difficult to, to take a more intuitive path. It's very difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. And to me, it, um, it links to, to works of people such as uh, Bessel van der Kolk and Peter Levine and people who are talking about um, trauma processing, about how a lot of um, what is stored in our body, right, and never goes away and creates this kind of constant noise in our lives where we're actually not able to, to focus on things that are uh, different than uh, that are not basically uh, there's this whole notion of uh, anything bad could happen at any moment and then we don't have the bandwidth to to, to turn our attention to uh, more volitional actions and and, and it, it turns certain parts of our semantic landscape in our brain that the kind of links between different things into no-go zones basically because the moment you touch them or tweak with them everything feels wrong and, and stress occurs um, that's one of the, the, the worst things about health stored trauma responses is it means that when your brain is drawing all of the associative links that it does all the time continuously and it happens to touch on on something that triggers the trauma, your, your body goes into, into trauma dealing with mode rather than into living mode. And it, yeah, so trauma is another great example of something that makes it very difficult for people to live intuitively. People have to... Um, reach a certain level that, that I kind of think of as a tipping point where um, dealing with, with most experiences that could potentially be traumatic can happen subconsciously and you don't need to sit there and consciously think through all the stages. You can just, just be. Um, and I don't, I have no idea still what the kind of percentage of people I'm talking to is or anything like that. It, it's a low percentage, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, so to, to go back to your personal story a bit, is it? Do you think that uh, once you got on the boat and you were living in a more contained space, right? You you would not. You literally did not have the option now to think about a million different things to do in the city where you would go out and do that. Was that was that um, aiding you in actually? Uh, pruning a lot of these unnecessary um, branches of thought that might distract mm. us? Like, is that a good beginning to to get more in touch with yourself is to filter out a lot of distractions? 
I think it possibly could be for some people if distractions is is what's limiting your life. But at the same time, I know plenty of other sailors who are constantly preoccupied with doing things and getting to the next island to visit the coral reef that they've heard of was good mm. by somebody else. Um, you can still be entirely caught up in optionality while living on a boat. There, there are plenty of people who who live like that, particularly the American sailors um, that, that constantly doing and looking for the next thing to do and reading all the guidebooks to make sure you don't miss anything and that kind of thing. Um, that's very much not how we sail, but I think that's more by our temperament, our pre-existing relationships as a family rather than the um, reduction in optionality from the boat. Um, we've always been quite comfortable in our own company. And I think that that allows you to, to withdraw from optionality when you want to and to engage in it when you want to. Um, and, and it allows you to kind of take serendipity rather than planned thinking through the options, um, which is another part of, of how this life works. It, it kind of more serendipitous and playful, I think, than most. Yeah, I think serendipity and playfulness are definitely central concepts and they have come up in, in recent conversations on this podcast too. Um, and what would be then uh, a kind of a, of a first step for somebody who's looking to uh, maybe not be so much troubled by noise and hmm and focusing on intuition and kind of getting back in touch with with one's own uh what what would you call so just a, a quick question what what do you call the um the mind body as a whole <laughs> that I, I call it the body mind because okay. it seems like the simplest word that's understood by at least a decent minority of people to mean the kind of collective nervous system and everything else about us, whatever is giving us insights, um, because we, we know it's a lot more complicated than the brain now. Yeah. But yeah, body-mind is my term. Okay. So what would be a first step for somebody who's looking to, to actually turn their attention into, um, yeah, onto that, onto the body-mind? So... It kind of depends where you're starting from. Uh, there needs to be a draining of distractions from your life and some kind of alignment between what you're attending to and who you want to be. That has to be reasonably aligned for me before you can start to, to look at training your intuition in a meaningful way. And the first steps are listening, learning to listen to the signals that your body mind's giving you. So, so most people can key into things like their breathing relatively quickly because you can attend to your breathing very consciously. It's very easy to measure the corollaries of the interoceptive signals through things like you can see your chest expanding and contracting, which maps onto the stretch sensors that feed into your subconscious. So if you start attending to your breath, your, your body mind is, is linking your conscious perception of the chest expansion and contraction and the diaphragm moving and things that you can sense with all of those interoceptive signals. And what that gives you is the ability to know how you're breathing intuitively at any moment, which also gives you the ability to know how you're feeling intuitively at any moment, because your breathing and your feeling is intimately linked. And there are lots of people at the moment who are looking at how you can use your breathing to impact your feeling. 
But for me, the really interesting stuff is to go the other way around and look at um, how your breathing shows you your feelings and how um, how you can then test out ideas and ask yourself questions and know how you would feel in that situation almost immediately and intuitively. So when we're making decisions, basically all that we do is, is visualize potential paths and see which one feels better. And that's the one that's better. Oh, I love it. I love it because, you know, it's, it's, it's so simple at, at, mm -hmm. at, at its core thesis. There's not, yeah. um, there's not any kind of mountains of words that needs to be uh, dumped on this to, to clarify this. It reminds me of, uh, it makes me think of the famous, I think by now it's quite famous, uh, the V.S. Ramachandran, who's a neuroscientist who managed to uh, find a way to fix uh, phantom limb syndrome with a lot of mm -hmm. people. So phantom limbs, if if somebody listening doesn't know, uh, is a is a thing that happens for uh, amputees. They can sometimes still have parts of their uh, brain, presumably, feel that their uh, limb that isn't actually there is twisted in some painful way and interpret it as as. Uh, something painful happening and they feel real pain from a limb that's simply not there anymore. And he managed to come up with a way to fix it. So basically if uh, let's say a person is missing the right hand, uh, he would put a mirror where the right hand sort of is or between their uh, kind of straight in front of their chest and the reflection from their perfectly healthy left hand would be, would be apparent in the mirror and it would look like the right hand, right? And then the brain does something amazing, which is actually now, because it's witnessing through the senses, a limb that's not um, twisted in some painful way, this actually changes neurological pathways in the brain and the phantom limb syndrome is just gone forever so it sounds to me a lot uh which is mind-blowing mm -hmm. really when you first think of it and it really shows that it is a body mind we're dealing with mm -hmm. right it's not just a body or just a mind it's two aspects of one thing right and what you're saying is is kind of uh seems to be related with that it shows that there is a a, a porous thing between these two uh distinct distinct aspects of ourselves, which I think there is usefulness in distinguishing between them because it does come come naturally, it does come naturally to us to separate, see them as two different things. But what we need to um, to encourage and to promote is really the understanding of, of how uh, porous the whatever membrane is between <laughs> them, right? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the, the useful distinction is between what you might call cognitive reasoning or rationality and that kind of um, the way that we try to think through problems and our body mind, which is, which is a lot more than rational. And I think because rationality has been so successful for humanity and sciences and, um, or been seen as so successful for humanity and sciences over the past few centuries, we've, we've neglected the non-rational side of humanity. And it turns out that basically everything to do with human well-being and flourishing is is more easily achieved through non-rationality and simply 
living and using all of whatever goes on in your body mind nobody really knows but using all of that than it is through planning and cognitive ease um the cognitive processes tell us what makes people in general happy but it doesn't tell you what makes you happy every individual is slightly different and listening to your body allows you to tap into what makes you happy at the moment and then you can start to look at things like where there are two conflicting things that make you happy and work out which one fits best with the rest of your life and which one needs needs to be deprioritized somewhat so you, you can get more more narrowed down over time but the starting point for intuition like i say is this listening process um often to the breath sorry yeah. for coming back then <laughs> no that's that's wonderful i mean it touches on so many things that are going through my mind in in recent uh weeks and months um i do dialectic with people which is is about using mm. uh words or language but the whole point is to see how uh whatever concepts we use are are beyond language right and yeah the the simple way to notice this is to notice that if if you're bilingual or if anybody's bilingual then you notice that different uh different cultures cut up reality differently right into different into different uh concepts and then and then that's how we think um so i do i do use words but the the best thing you could do with dialectic is is create a true model of reality using concepts and that's all seemingly that all seemingly is, is cognitive of the from the mm -hmm. cognitive part of things but actually then after you're done with dialectic which is quite a, a cerebral pursuit then it you have to remember that it's only one tool in the repertoire of the philosopher and the philosopher is a person who um <laughs> wishes to do well in life and it's it's doing it's something active right mm -hmm. so all of this has to be applied in real time and i really like how this connects with what you're saying about actual experimentation because i have um uh, the knowledge or that philosophy is a hundred percent a science it is it's mm -hmm. not and you have to harness rationality into all of that so i would not say that it's, it's not using rationality it's just knowing that it doesn't end there right and it's yeah. actually taking the rationality understanding that it, it can only take you so far and then after that comes a part where it's the doing where it's the experimentation and you have to go back and forth between the two because that's what experimentation means right you get uh feedback so basically i define science in the in um uh, in the sense that uh karl popper does and david deutsch who is a student of his um science is a process of conjecture and refutation so you need mm -hmm. good explanation so basically a, a conjecture that you would have is some sort of mental framework for why uh, this thing which this decision that I'm about to make is going to make me happy but then you have to be serious about it you have to apply you have to go experiment receive feedback and then see i think um what it does to you basically which is yeah. what you're saying and act accordingly and refine this and just become better and better at 
feeling the nuance and and always and the, refining it. The other thing that I'm saying is that the first experiment can be entirely internal. So the moment you start to pose a question to your mind, your subconscious runs through all the possibilities for you. And it starts to feel according to those possibilities. Mm. Um, so if you look at, on a really simple level, when, when you read a word, your mind is searching for and priming you with all of the potential associations with that word, just on a single word basis. So my the, the example I always come to is from Marjorie Wolfrey to come home, it's tracks. When you read the word tracks, your body is doing all sorts of things like priming your motor cortex in case you're reading about tracking a ball through the sky as it's racing towards you. It's priming train tracks and remembering some nostalgic memories from your childhood. It's priming um, tracks as in braces for those of you who use the term for braces. And it's pulling together all of these different tracks in the snow and the animals that might be making those tracks and they're all popping up in your head. And your, your brain is an amazing associative tool and it's primed with all of the knowledge that you've developed, particularly for those of you who have a world model of the type you're talking about from dialectic, because you've thought about that model and, and kind of tweaked it to an extent. So your brain's doing all that and running through it all with you. So if you throw it an idea like, how would I feel if I did this? And you sit in that world for a bit and you give your brain the time to run through all of those associative mechanisms, your brain doesn't just prime your, your cognitive mind, it also primes your emotional mind and it primes your body because when your emotions change, the way you breathe changes and the way you, you hold the tension in your body changes. So when you, when you imagine that future scenario, the first experiment is to let yourself run through it in your head for long enough and it, with enough inner peace to actually experience that moment and know how you'd feel in that moment. And when you've done that, that, that's really what I mean by having a conversation with your subconscious. Your intuition is, is asking a question and waiting to receive a response. And then you can ask a more nuanced question and wait to receive a response. And you can keep drilling down like that and run things internally. And basically, it, it's, it's based on the premise that our subconscious knows us and how we would react in different situations far better than our conscious mind does which I think is more or less indisputable. Um, and it's based on the premise that our subconscious holds most of the models that we can apply consciously as well. So couldn't do basically everything our conscious mind can. Um, and what I've found and what my clients have found is that we can, if we listen well, make basically every decision intuitively in our lives. Um, that applies to business as well as, as, well as personal life but I don't talk about business much. And that, that's the basic process. Ask your subconscious a question, wait for the answer, and then go with it. You don't need to think anymore. Yeah, that makes sense also because the fact is that whatever is in our consciousness is real to us. And it doesn't matter if it's a, a made-up world or a, or a world that is, you know, not reality out there. If, it, if we're living it out in our mind, this is where we are, you know, this is our ability to get ourselves unstuck in time and space and, and explore different possibilities. 
And yeah, you're so right. And if, if, if we give, if that's a given, then of course you don't have to try out every crazy thing that you do. And uh, yeah, when that seems particularly useful when for me now, you know, as time goes by, I become less and less employable because I'm spending my time making this podcast and now I'm I'm going through the if I'm going through the motions of think even thinking about a future where I'm um, I'm a, a an employee of of somebody doing something which I don't really like you know I have an allergy to that because <laughs> I'm actually uh, I have been in that space of of serendipity and of things coming to me naturally and not forcing myself to follow some sort of preconceived life that's the that whatever culture I, I inherited from culture and yeah it makes total sense that um actually looking back on my own life you know i haven't always been like that and only now i can recognize how limited i was by these preconceived notions that um kind of narrow down the things that i can mm-hmm. even entertain in my mind and get feedback about because at first, if you don't experience any sort of this freedom, you just hit a brick wall very fast of, of, a, of a whole culture telling you to just stop, think about it, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic, the normal path, I don't know if you know Paul Millard and his pathless path. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about that, yeah. I, I, I'm really enjoying that at the moment because it, it contrasts so neatly with the idea of a singular path that people should follow. and that's what constrains most people's possibility space. They can't really think outside it, or if they do think outside it, it's so outlandish that they can't build a model of that world in their mind. They can't even imagine it. And if you can't imagine something and how you'd, then you can't know how you'd feel there and you can't decide to go there. You need that imaginal space before you can kind of create the realities in your mind. And that that's one of the things that I think is, is important to, kind of add is that where your intuition stops is where your imagination stops it's it's where you can't put yourself into a into a a reasonably accurate world model of the place and that's where the cognition is really useful because it allows you to build a broader world model by reading or by thinking or by talking and once you once you have a kind of a possibility space that expands beyond the life that you're already living then you can start to think about and make decisions more broadly um that's actually been one of the other benefits of sailing is encountering people from completely different cultures living completely different lives and finding their own happiness in those lives that is completely outside the world that i'd ever experienced in in the uk or when i traveled as a tourist um people live in very different ways and it's liberating to see those in practice yeah and and i love it you know you say you say culture so obviously i think travel for those of us who are able to to experience it in their lifetime and are lucky enough to be able in a position to travel that's that's a huge thing and um also in terms of even even diet for example you know how many of us are reading about diets and what the best diet is now i happen to actually be mediterranean and i eat the mediterranean diet which doctors apparently Mm -hmm. um say everyone should have 
But really, if you go around the world and you think about how much people, again, kind of become neurotic about their diet, you go around the world, you see different cultures and you realize that now actually humans can subsist off of just um, basically seal blubber and meat if you're in the Arctic or something like that to something as as different from that on, um, I don't know, manioc roots and and yet in another continent the mediterranean diet and and so on and it kind of triggers in you the the notion that this is more about mindset than than actual details nitty-gritty details of what you get in your body sure it's probably good to have uh, food that's not being processed but mm-hmm. it's it's actually uh, more about not worrying and doing what comes naturally to you and what feels good in a way that again could uh, could be uh, made apparent if you get in touch with yourself intuitively right yeah so so, that's so, i mean that's intuitive eating is what you're talking about the, yeah. the the idea that if you again you have to slow down enough to let yourself feel the sensations of the food and when you've reached satiety and when you when you're full and 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 when you need more food and um it's something my kids are amazing at actually my, my my children eat um whatever they want within reason in fact barely within reason just whatever they want it's a fair summation and they um they vary their diet to suit their general energy levels they start demanding berries when they are developing a cold we've noticed that on on several occasions if, wow. if they're about to get ill they start the berries a couple of days earlier um, they start demanding more fruit at times and, you know, I don't know why other times they don't eat for a day, barely, they kind of barely graze. Um, breakfast is either at 7am and ravenous or at 3pm and just having a banana, um, depending on what mood they're in. And, and you, you can simply trust your gut. It's really hard for those of us who have not had the best diet to transition to intuitive eating. That's a tough transition for many people because of things like the carb cycle um, and, and the fact so many people nowadays are, are dependent on constant carbohydrate intake. Um, mm-hmm. The sugar intake in, in American style diets and the, the various additives that go into those are quite staggering as well. Um, if there's one correlation we've noticed in, in sailing between people's general health and the world around them, it's been the availability of American style processed foods, particularly American rather than European. I don't know if it's an additive thing or if it's just a marketing thing, but where they are available, people are bigger. Wow. Well, it could also be that you're just a descendant of the people who lost the civil the, the war, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, joking. Um, yeah, it's it's it is fascinating. And you know, another thing that that I'm thinking about, that I was thinking about as you were talking is moving from a mindset of of scarcity to a mindset of abundance mm-hmm. and and security yeah. because i think that to give space for things to come to you uh there needs to be a, a basic feeling in you that whatever is going to come is not going to be a horrible thing right yeah. so for me and i think for many people like i learned uh at a way too early in life that everything could change. So my mom died when I was young and 
You know, this instinctively puts you in a mode that you think, well, any sort of unknowability of the future mm-hmm. is a bad thing, right? Because yeah. things that, that come to us are things that are, are the things that are painful. When in fact, there is literally no logical necessity for that to be the thought. Actually, in the societies, in the kind of societies that we live in, in Western societies, it's actually highly unlikely that we're going to suffer from an accident or um, a sudden situation where a week from now we're actually, you know, going for a food scrap somewhere. And I wonder if, if for you, have you noticed that this was something that I, I also, I think this relates to the fact that you, you went sailing and you had these two years of knowing kind of that yeah. there was nothing to achieve in those two years. You were basically all set for these two years and you knew you had the, the means to, to uh, survive. Like you weren't afraid of that. And now you were totally open to be open to the possibility of actually thriving, right? Is that something you noticed? Yeah, so the, the the first thing is I was very lucky in that I grew up with two parents who loved me and cared for me and gave me that security in myself that a lot of people today lack. And I I can't overstate how important that is in my own confidence in myself. You know, the, the fact I had those... Um, wonderful people bringing me up is is a, an immense privilege that not many people seem to have now which is a real shame and the second thing is the the financial security because so many people conflate their fears about novelty and letting the world come to them with fears about money and fears that they won't be able to sustain themselves in financial terms because everybody turns everything into a financial game nowadays. And I was lucky in two ways. Um, one is when we sold the house, we had enough to live on for two years, but it was fairly tight. And that was incredibly lucky for me because it allowed us as a family to experience living on not a lot of money. I think we spent something like 20,000 US in one of the years that we were sailing, which is not a lot of money for a family of four becoming five. Um, and we were perfectly comfortable on that. We had a wonderful time. Uh, and that that gives us a freedom to know that we don't need a huge amount of money to live well for us. And the second is I, I have skills that make finding some kind of employment reasonably easy. So I, I can do a lot of different things that I enjoy or I can make myself enjoy a lot of different things that I can do. And that gives me a flexibility in, in providing income and a comfort in providing income that means, you know, my, my fuck you money threshold is zero, if that makes sense. I, I don't need to have savings to feel secure because I could go and get a job painting boats and I was offered a job painting boats while we were in our Arecife because somebody saw me painting my own boat and the way that I attended to it and took care of it and offered me a job um, and the same has happened in other places since um, not to mention the academic research skills and many other things that I could do to make money so uh, I, I'm looking those two ways I have that inner security from childhood and I have that security that I can provide for myself and my family in a variety of different ways if I need to, um, which means there's always a fallback. 
so the two-year sabbatical was important, but it was mostly important because it, it gave us a limited budget for a while that means I know I can provide that budget. That, that money is easy to come by in my life. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, it's always, I know that's another thing that uh, Paul Miller, that I've heard him mention on tweets or, or podcasts. Um, yeah, that's, that's a huge advantage to also know what is enough, right? So, mm. so this would be something uh, interesting to explore and talk about the, the whole notion of, of what is enough, because I think it goes, um, the feeling that that something is still lacking goes hand in hand with that feeling of trying to to optimize things to not um not really having the the satisfaction um thinking that you shouldn't um you shouldn't give up on anything you want so it's it's such a common theme in western societies you know to to indulge yourself right it's almost <laughs> it's almost a virtue to be able to do that. Like people who, who have the means to indulge themselves to any kind of fancy that they have, that's seen as a, as a, as a highly positive thing when actually if that is put under scrutiny from a psychological point of view, this literally means that you're not going to feel that you have enough at any, yep. at any point. Um, so that, that seems to be, uh, intimately connected with with what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think in two ways. So one is people find novelty in purchasing and consumption to be something that's aspirational, and because of hedonic adaptation, you never really reach enough. Like you say, you're always seeking a little bit more. If that is your path to well-being. And the other thing is, for a lot of people, there's a disconnect between that kind of lifestyle where you're you're looking to to bring stuff and and experiences into your life and the other things that matter in life whatever they may be to you so for me family is it's the big one and more money doesn't make my relationship with my family any better it, it might make it easier in some ways it might mean i have to do less work on the boat or whatever but it it's a marginal gain and that kind of small marginal gain isn't worth the sacrifice that would be entailed to get there. So when people are kind of focused on a single track of success or a single track of, of um, consumption or, um, or monetary success, it's very easy for them to go way past the point of marginal gains to the point that they're chasing that thing up there and forgetting about all of the other things that contribute to their well-being and to, the, to their lives. Um, and because everybody's different in the balance that they would be best suited to, it's not really something you can measure. And I know we've talked about non-quantifiability yeah. before in terms of living well um, on Twitter. And, and that's really what I'm getting at there is you can't measure your well-being by its subcomponents. There's no certain balance of subcomponents that that lead to a wonderful life. A wonderful life is a wonderful life in sum, in total. And it doesn't divide, it's non-divisible. So when you try and measure something like your, your success or your relationships or your health or your sleep, 
what you're doing is you're prioritizing that one narrow slice at the expense of the whole and the whole is what we experience as humans yeah i love it so one metaphor that i've been kind of running with lately is one of how people can think of life so so first of all the uh, the framing of of life or of the good life calling it the good life already um gives a hint that it's looked at as a static thing rather than an active <laughs> thing, right? So that's why it's yeah. very important for me to talk about living well or doing well, because it's an active thing. It's not a static picture. When a lot of times I think people are looking at, at the good life as a still picture that includes as many things that, that they would like to have, right? So for a lot of people, I'm just giving an example. Like it could be um, sitting on the beach with their favorite cocktail with a number of um, whatever uh, sexually attractive partners around them, whatever they find in life that would make up this good life, right? The expensive car and the beautiful house. Um, and then they try to think of it and say, okay, how do I put all the pieces? Now, let's imagine the still picture is being cut up into a jigsaw puzzle, right? So now they're trying to fit in all the pieces into place. And it just happens so that uh, because life is always in flux and they don't mm -hmm. recognize it, it turns out that life will always bring a gust of wind that will take away some of these puzzle pieces that you've already had in place. And it becomes this frustrating thing where you can never actually get to a point where this stays. Even if you've put together the whole puzzle, it's mm -hmm. going to be there, what, 30 minutes? before you get hungry or whatever and your mood is ruined and now you need to go. So I'm, I'm all for this um, approach of seeing life as a, as a non-divisible whole thing. That is, that is so true. And it brings back uh, a memory for me of me going to uni. And I remember I wanted to have the chance to, to, to go into an MA program. Right. So what does it take to go into an MA program is to have whatever um, the average had to be 85 or something uh, of, of the overall score, like combined. And I remember like being really upset if, if I scored 93 in something because it told me that I, I spent, you know, just this a little bit too much time on getting to 93. If you ask me, I would have liked to get just the 85, like just get on what is good enough. And I actually intend on, on doing uh, an episode. I don't know with whom yet. It might be uh, a solo episode or a reverse episode on the whole notion of good, better, best. Mm. Because people go into their minds into these um, made up scenarios um, and they don't focus on the on the one life that we are living, and on the the real yeah. feedback that we get from uh, from intuiting. Um, they start comparing. Yeah, and that that is um, that is the first step that you have to take to go into quantifiability, and therefore to actually losing touch with actual reality right mm. it's the comparison yeah. and i think the other thing is that th th this all links to, to what you just said that when you divide life up into a jigsaw puzzle you have several pieces to manage and 
people who are working cognitively are incredibly bad at managing multiple priorities. It's incredibly difficult to do that. So the natural tendency for nearly everybody is to fixate on the one that they see as the problem, that they see as the most difficult or the most anxiety inducing, which is normally something to do with wealth, at least in the West. That's why people worry about money rather than their family, and they take their family somewhat for granted in a lot of cases. So I know, I know one of the other things that kind of has pointed me to the direction that we're in on the right track for our life is the number of people that we've met who have had, by any definition, successful, wonderful lives. I'm thinking of um, a retired couple we met in a marina in um, Antigua who were on their yacht that stays in Antigua. They had three homes. Uh, their daughter was an opera singer. Their son was uh, an engineer for a very large firm, you know, hugely successful. And they were watching our kids run around deck and they were crying. And they were crying because of the things that they'd sacrificed in their lives to get to that point. And I think... Wow. Families that we've met like that, and, and they're not the only ones, they're just the ones that stick in my head because I, I distinctly remember the chocolate that the man bought for my kids. He had it imported to give my kids a gift from his, from his home uh, in Switzerland. And I, I remember them, but there have been many other people who have had the definition of a successful life, wonderful lives, who look at what we're doing and say without any hesitation that they wish they'd done the same and if you don't listen to those people then i i think it's it's difficult to to kind of justify going back for us um and it it that's one of the reasons that i try and advocate other people think about their own lives in a more holistic path as well because they'd fixated on the wealth they'd fixated on their, their careers and they had, like many people, sacrificed what they could have done, which was one of them could have stayed at home for a period of time, or they could have worked part-time. They were both perfectly successful in their careers and could have stepped back much earlier when their kids were young and enjoyed the kids growing up. They are only young once. It's the phrase we hear all the time. That, that's, that's amazing. So there are about three thoughts that's popping to my head. So first of all, I'm going to uh, mention on the podcast again, uh, Bronnie's where regrets of the dying, right? So you say, mm -hmm. listen to these people. And of course, uh, more people that we can listen to other people we can listen to are those people in, in hospices that Bronnie Ware, who is an Australian nurse went and asked them when they're on their deathbed, well, what do you actually regret? And it's, you know, invariably they're saying, spending more time with family, letting myself feel what I feel, letting myself mm. express myself more authentically, yeah. right? Exactly these things that, um, which is really interesting. So, so you have these people again, who have absolutely no reason at this stage of their life to be um, basically not saying the truth. And, it, and it's interesting how to make, I don't want to make it too explicit because it's not a nice thing to do, but to, kind of make the link between people on their deathbed and people who have um, somehow conquered the world in terms of, in, in, in material terms, but look how poor you can be um, yeah. 
spiritually. And, right? and so, the other thing is that, that these weren't, and many of the people we've met aren't people who are really poor spiritually. They don't have bad relationships with their families or their children or anything. They have what what is termed normally a yeah. really good relationship with their kids. Yeah. But they could have had more. And they know they could have had more. Yeah, that's that's such a good point um, because, um, yeah. Yeah, and another another thing that, uh, that popped in my mind was... Um, yeah, looking at how money is just an easy thing to go to because it's because it's by definition it's quantifiable and um, you know the more the better. It's easy to look at a graph and and yeah. and and decide and you know you have a whole culture behind you that this is uh, this okay. is what the this is what it's pushing you to do. Look at the graph and quantify. And if you're higher on the graph, that's uh, that means you have a good life. Uh, but it's really interesting that we can be at, at 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 the same time quite bad at getting feedback from ourselves uh, by by uh, looking by looking at our intuition or getting the the feedback from it, and at the same time it's inevitable that we're going to have this late night moment where we don't fall asleep and something we know. We know that we're not doing as well as we could, right? So it's it's really interesting how we can work so hard to quieten these noises, and at the same time they always spring up, right? So what is it? Is it it is a natural tendency? It's almost a pattern that we can't ignore. Harrison and, and the idea of um, the idea of placing yourself in a community of other people. I think is nearly a natural tendency. I'm sure there's a learned aspect to it, particularly the fixation with money is a learned aspect. But the idea of placing yourself in a community and um, ranking in some way is probably a natural human instinct. But it's one that in our world of immense scale, it's one that we need to rein in, um, one that we need to unlearn to an extent in order to live a good life ourselves. Um, the alternative is isolation from this wonderful world that we live in. And, and for me, that isn't the path. I know people who are perfectly happy with that path. We've met people who live in um, shacks on beaches, completely isolated from the world and as happy as they could possibly be. They're far the monks. than those people. Yeah. yeah, basically. I mean, they wouldn't call themselves that. They, you know, call themselves foragers or whatever, or farmers maybe. But, um, yeah, isolation or reining in of that comparative instinct is is really essential. And when you tune into yourself, you realize that actually comparison and, and isn't the most useful way to think about quality of life as a whole. It can work for the subcomponents, but it can't work for quality of life as a whole because I can live a wonderful life like this. The guys on the beach can live a wonderful life like that. Those people over there could live their wonderful life in a different way. And because of those individualities, um, you can't compare overall well-being. Or I don't find it as natural to compare overall well-being in the same way um, as you would material wealth or as you would your sleep tracker score or whatever. Um, th those those subcomponents can be quantified but overall well-being is much more difficult to put a number on uh, partly because we don't know the scale 
nobody has a real idea as to what the limits on human well-being are. That's a really interesting question too. Where's the top of this scale? Um, and partly because the comparisons between people aren't useful comparisons. Everybody's different and has their own definition of what their their living well would be. Um, and I will be different in two years. If you'd asked me 10 years ago whether my idea of a perfect life would be with my family, barely working, living on a yacht away from away from things and, and not working as the center of my life, I would have laughed at you. Mm-hmm. That, that wouldn't have been my life 10 years ago. And in 10 years, it might be completely different to this. Who knows? Um, yeah, yeah but you're in dialogue with yourself. So you know it's, it's subject to change. And, you know, you're not, again, putting any limitations on that. And I think it's, it's wonderful. I, I do want to comment on your little, uh, like pondering of what the limit for, for well-being <laughs> is, you know, to me, I have this, um, this image in my head of, uh, I don't know if you, you've ever got to see you probably, so not, not in, not in the sea, maybe, but snakes, I don't know, maybe out in the jungle. Oh, we got see to snakes see plenty here. <laughs> so snakes are just wonderful creatures in terms of locomotion, right? It's so different from us. Um, the way they find the, the optimal way to move through a terrain is absolutely mesmerizing, you know? And I think that for me, that's the best metaphor for, uh, living well. So for Stoics, a uh, characteristic of the person who lives well was that they're feeling a which means a uh, good flow, literally good flow. And this is what it feels on the inside, right? So when you go and you're there with yourself and you're uh, consulting yourself or taking the temperature or however we want to call it, you just feel that things have flown well um, for a while now and you don't see the conflict. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's interesting because it also adds this um, aspect of, of aesthetics into it because if you live a life that you can sort of um, compare with a snake moving through the terrain in this most elegant of ways, in this most efficient of ways, uh, that's somehow for me a, a measure for, for living well. Is that something that, that you've noticed that it's, it's really, it moves from, from quantifiability to something more like flow and it's not, it's not yeah. coincidental. And something more environmentally specific. So we're all in different environments and different contexts and we're all different internally. We have different kind of makeups psychologically and our versions of flow will all look different. So yeah, I, I quite like that as an analogy for, for how you think about well-being. It's how comfortably you can flow through your own environment is a nice definition of well-being. I, I've kind of talked about the way that I live as flow, but for living before. So, so when I when I write about deep life, I'm thinking about exactly that immersion in life and not needing to stop and think and worry about other things and being able to just dive in and live um, with all of the abandon that people talk about flow for creativity for in that sense and, and the way that snakes can move effortlessly and aesthetically pleasingly through their landscape. Um, yeah, that that entirely works um i guess the other thing is the shape of well-being in individual lives interests me so so when people talk about their life path and how their their well-being has improved or not um and the, the kind of tipping points at which 
things suddenly become easier for people are fascinating. We're seeing some of those um, at the moment on Twitter with the, the people talking about self-love and self-awareness and, and that kind of acceptingness of yourself. Um, Sasha Shapin, maybe? I, I can't remember his surname. Um, is talking about um, deep okayness and how he's suddenly comfortable with himself after years of not being. And those tipping points are really interesting to me at which people realize that they can let go of things that they previously tried to control and they can flow through their environment in, in a way that they didn't realize was possible before. Um, yeah. And I, I think they're the points that I'm talking about of exponential growth in well-being. It's probably a kind of sigmoid curve, um, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, where you have a fairly flat period, which is where most people are at the moment. I think the general level of, of human well-being in the West is incredibly low, um, particularly considering our material wealth. And then you have this exponential period of comfort and, and um, slightly more intuitive living. And there's probably a plateau at the top. I haven't got there yet, but there probably is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a if there's a plateau or, you know, at some point uh, we have to maybe step away from the metaphor of, mm -hmm. of a graph or something, because in a way it's also kind of comparing the, the previous plateau with the, with the trend yeah. of where it's going. And I think, yeah, that's why I think in terms of, you know, at some point thinking about it, of not even getting from point A to B, right? It's more like this mm -hmm. improvisational dance where some of your, there's a, there's a tension between um, your creativity as it can be expressed. So it's not exactly, it's not exactly dancing in a, in a completely open space. Like you, you do have, you are, um, faced with challenges. So maybe it's moving through a landscape where some of your uh, movements are dictated by, by terrain, uh, but there's still a lot of room for creativity, right? So yeah. there's also the thing of, of how, how rules and limitations actually add to your well-being rather than detract mm -hmm. from it, which is, which is really nice. Um, yeah. So, wow, this has been an amazingly uh, nice flowing conversation. I want us to think a little bit, or I want to hear your thoughts about uh, what are some of the things that we can do to really kind of cheer ourselves towards a position where we're able to maybe let go some of some of these anxieties or, or some of these um, uh, yeah, the things that basically preoccupy us and, and going in more into a mode of open-endedness and, and looking forward to serendipity and not, not fearing the future because it's just as logical to be excited about it in a positive way. Like, are there techniques to let go of some of these fears that control us? So the, the first thing is, this isn't the area on which I will claim any expertise. My contribution to anything to do with personal development is at the top end. It's not for people who are currently mm. holding the anxieties and the worries. But there, there are several things that clearly can work for a lot of people. Um, the first is trying to reduce the amount that you do and consume in your life and that itself can be difficult for a lot of people but for nearly everybody the path to personal growth starts with subtraction 
And that's an incredibly difficult message for a lot of people to hear at the moment. But when people start to subtract things from their lives and give themselves space, they allow their parasympathetic nervous system to come to the fore. And that helps you balance everything in your body mind. That's kind of what it does. That's its job is to retain and restore the balance in, in, in your body mind. And that's one of the primary benefits of practices like meditation. Um, so practices like meditation are all about being comfortable with yourself and not necessarily quietening your mind, but watching your mind. Um, the best stepping stone practice for a lot of people is something like a walking meditation where you simply walk and observe your th thoughts and try not to judge yourself. Try not to judge yourself um, and just watch them. Just Oh, I'm thinking about this. Notice them, a shift to a mindset of noticing. Um, there are all sorts of people writing and thinking interesting things about how to do that now. Um, and they center on a noticing mindset in which you're aware of those thoughts, but you're not necessarily consumed by them and constantly thinking about them and letting them kind of dominate where your mind goes next. And the walking helps because physical activity, gentle physical activity just helps everything. Um, the other things that I, I've heard really good things about lately are loving kindness meditation specifically. There are a lot of people who are struggling with, um, with issues of self-worth and of tying their worth up in other people. And because of our society, that makes perfect sense because everything nowadays is about external validation and not seeing worth from within, but seeing worth from the scores you get on those tests as a child or your weight as a baby or something ridiculous. And being able to detach from that and realize that actually you are enough is something that a lot of people are finding really powerful at the moment. Um, so that kind of stepping stone practice to becoming more comfortable with yourself um, helps to step away from those anxieties and those constant drive to do. Uh, the real message is to do less. It's to spend more time not doing. And when you're not doing, if you can not do in a non-anxious fashion, that's the difficult bit, but if you can not do in a non-anxious fashion, your mind can start to reset and balance itself and things become a lot easier and you can shift yourself into a new cycle. Um, then it becomes about attention management for me. And it's about aligning what you're reading, thinking about, consuming, talking about with people with things that are good for you in your life, um, things that you think will contribute to, to becoming better. Um, detaching from mainstream media, if you want to be more positive, is, is the first step and things like that. Um, trying to align those two things. And once those two things are aligned, to a greater extent, you can become more self-reinforcing in the same way that anxiety and worry is a self-reinforcing cycle. Stepping out of that can lead to a new self-reinforcing cycle in, in which you have a more positive experience of life. And then is where I really come in in terms of my knowledge with, with, um, with intuitive insights, because you need to be in a more comfortable place before you can step into the intuitive frame, I think. Um, I'd love to be able to offer people a shortcut, but I, I I don't feel qualified to do that yet. No, that's that's wonderful, and I think um, I think that's spot on. Um, give yourself the the chance to to just 
be there and and question and, and question some basic assumptions that we have lying around since childhood yeah. because we grow up in a culture that is um that is competitive that kind of you know tacitly tells us to um commands us to find a purpose in life like do something with yourself achieve something where it's actually quite unclear what it means to achieve something in this yeah. life um so yeah that's uh, i think i think um that's wonderful that's wonderful um advice and and thought there yeah and what about in terms in terms of intuitions like could you send us away with um with uh, an insight that you have um in that in that field of your expertise sure so what i'm trying to do in the course that starts later this this month or the training program train your intuition is help people to listen to their intuitive insights because so many people have quietened theirs by ignoring them for so long um it's like any kind of signal that your body gets if you ignore it for long enough it fades away from yourself and you can't hear it anymore so i'm trying to encourage people to listen to their the insights of their body mind um then to train their subconscious a little bit to align things um to fit together positivity or um a little bit more play in your intuitive responses to situations and i guess one of the really important things to stress is that nearly everything about you can be trained nearly everything there's very little in our personalities our makeups or how we respond to the world around us that's actually fixed um we might have limited ranges but those ranges are still huge so you think about some of the most limited things about us like um our IQ is the example i always come to because everybody thinks you discover an IQ and mm-hmm. you don't you can train an IQ to at least a standard deviation in each direction um which is a huge amount um a hugely perceptible amount and if you can do that for your IQ which is like a base level capability of the brain i'd like to invite people to think about what you can do for your empathy what you can do for your experience of love what you can do for your experience of awe and wonder at the world around us um those can be multiplied you know hugely from where most people are nowadays those those are things that in most people's lives are are side points experienced occasionally and can be brought into your life as a, as an everyday routine and and then as an everyday experience because it's just there as a background of of wonderfulness and and that's really what training your intuition is about is about changing your everyday experience of life um and then calibrating it so that you know the areas in which you can't just act because for all of us we have a kind of circle of competence people are probably used to the idea of intuitive expertise where you're an expert on a subject and you can just guess the answer and you'll be right yeah. because you really know that area and what i'm all about is expanding that circle of competence until it encompasses most of your life but knowing where the limits are So there are things that I have to think about when I'm doing them just like there are for everybody. Mm-hmm. Those things are are the things that are outside the circle of competence. And knowing where those limits are is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I like it and it and it also I think touches on the point that I think that the whole thing that we've been discussing is going to lead to a place where you are much more focused about 
um, how decisions are made and derived at, but ultimately it's not so much about the outcomes. It's not about worrying about the outcomes yeah. so much because there's there's a limit to what we're able to, to foresee. And um, we're never going to have the power to completely dominate and control reality. And that also creates a softer place within ourselves where we are more um, forgiving towards ourselves because we all we have to do is basically look at our decisions say, well, was this within the bounds of reason and, and feeling good about this thing, right? And as yeah. long as it's within this range, that was a, a good enough decision. We don't have to worry about getting it so right in such a narrow way that it actually produced the result we dreamed of. Yeah. So th those, those defined decisions where you have a right answer, they only exist in really simplistic terms. They exist when you have an experiment of economics where you ma you're making an economically rational decision or where you're playing a game with a defined rule set and a defined objective. But life isn't a game. Life is a huge, wonderful experience. And you, those don't have right decisions. There are no right decisions in life. Um, so yeah, you're entirely right. It, it's about knowing that you're comfortable with the decision you made, that you made the decision for the right reasons. And if you've made the decision for the right reasons, that's enough. Wonderful. Well, I'm clearly holding myself from just keeping on having this conversation, but this has been such a wonderful time. And I'd like you, Dave, to, uh, to share with everyone listening, um, the places where you and your thoughts can be found um, and any uh, course that you're that you're now about to offer offering. So uh, please go ahead and let us know where to find you. Sure. So the only social network I'm actually on personally is Twitter. Um, I'm Dave Seebeck on there. You can find information about everything I do at www.davesebeck.com, which is just a general pointing website and uh, a newsletter that I share excerpts from my upcoming book deep life which is about using your attention to achieve your aspirational self it's about um finding a cycle that works for you of attending to things that fit with who you want to be so that you become that person over time naturally without having to try too hard um, and it also has information about my course which is train your intuition um, that's going to be a training program with what most people in America would understand as courses each month or each month or so as my life permits, helping people listen to their intuition, train their subconscious and calibrate their confidence in acting more intuitively in their lives. It's based on all the stuff I've read as an academic around attention and intuition and all the stuff I've helped my clients with over the past few years. I'm kind of limiting it to the stuff I've put into practice for now. Um, and you can find out more about that on the website. I think that's the only things to highlight, really. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So now, you know, with this talk and now learning that my podcast is a deep dive and your book is the deep life, I definitely feel that we're allies and this has been such a pleasure. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, possibly looking forward to more of these. Thank yeah, you. Great to speak with you. Thanks. Good conversation.